The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. First thing I want to start with is by saying thank you. You see the slide in front of you. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Uh, at TBC, we need about uh, $300,000 a month to cover all of our expenses, and you give that faithfully month after month. December is a month when we have year in giving that helps us retire debt for building. Uh, in our history, our greatest month was two, to December of 2013, when we took in about $730,000. And uh, my financial sec- our financial secretary came to me Sunday and said, Gary, you've got to see this. And uh, through God's grace and your generosity, a little bit over $1 million came in in the month of December alone. So that is, that is astounding. Nobody came to your door and knocked on it and asked for a pledge or a campaign drive. Uh, we just believe God's work done in God's way will be supported by God's people because it's part of your worship. And that's what happened. And so uh, this remodels about $3.6 million. The result of that is uh, we have about $3 million on hand now. So minimum amount to borrow, if any at all, by the time it's completed. They say it'll be ready uh, by the end of uh, sometime in May. That means, uh, in my mind, sometime in June we'll be moving in there. Which brings us to this uh, exciting chaos. Uh, the, the, the mess continues. You can see it out in the hallways in the lobby. And uh, many of you come in through the back doors over there, and you usually enter over here. Well, starting the next week or the week after, those doors are going to be closed, and you're going to enter through the children's wing down over there in the back. So if you park in the back and drop kids off at Creekside, or you're in Creekside like our college students and stuff coming back over here for a service, then this door is going to be closed. You're going to go over there. We just want to forewarn you that exciting chaos will continue uh, for quite a while. So... Uh, next five, six months, and we'll be done. So uh, thank you for your generosity. TBC, Austin Warrior, come and join me up here. He's down here. At TBC, we have elders and deacons. If you look at the top of your bulletin, you're going to hear from Austin Skaggs. We're presenting to you my dear friend Austin as a uh, candidate to serve as an elder at TBC. Our elders oversee the spiritual side of things. Our staff support the elders, and our deacons do the physical side of things. We have eight new guys coming on the deacon board starting Uh, the first of this year. You see some of them roaming the hallways today. And uh, so Austin presents himself, or we present Austin to you. He's going to share his testimony of his faith in Jesus. And if you have any reason to object to him serving, if you would just contact one of our elders on the board right now, we'll be glad to visit with you. About that next week, you'll hear from Shane Smith and these two young men we're presenting as candidates there. So I don't know last time somebody called you a young man, but I just did. So you're welcome. Let's welcome Austin. Would you welcome Austin? Thank you for giving me a couple of minutes of your time. Uh, like Gary said, my name is Austin Skaggs. My wife, Jessica, and I have two kiddos. Uh, Samantha is almost 11. She'll be 11 this month. And Charlie is 8. Charlie recently changed his middle name to Dragon. So we'll find out what that means. Very excited. Um, my story is one of a wonderfully gracious, loving, glorious God who decided to save a wretch that did not deserve it. Um, I grew up just south of here uh, in Georgetown, Texas, and my family, we were churchgoers, which means I grew up in children's ministry, and I was involved in youth group, and I even went to a Christian university. Uh, But my relationship with God had very, very little to do with God. It had to do with all the good things I did and all the bad things that I didn't do, and you know how that works out because eventually I do those bad things. 
And when I did, it created a lot of secrets and a lot of shame. And that secrets and shame produced a lot more sin that hurt a lot of people, especially my wife. And as I turned 30 many years ago, it all came crashing down. And I hit rock bottom. And right before I lost everything, God decided to do something that I wasn't expecting. He changed me. And I think Ezekiel 36 probably says it best when the Lord says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put inside of you. And I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit inside of you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my laws. And that's exactly what he did for me. He didn't pick me up and dust me off and tell me to try again. He didn't give me a second chance. He gave me a new life. And ever since then, it's been completely different. Um, I was one of those guys that had, you know, any excuse not to be a part of biblical community, I would choose it. If, a ki- if the kid coughed once, we were not going to small group, you know. Um, the concept of being in the scriptures was laborious at best, and now I have a hunger and curiosity for his word every single day. And the concept of sharing my testimony was non-existent. And, and now the gospel's just on my lips throughout the day to, to friends and family, acquaintances, co-workers, myself. <laughs> um, and so it's just been a completely different thing. Um, I want to make it very clear, though, that that wasn't because of me. That's because we have a great and majestic and beautiful God that chooses to do those things, that chooses to give new life. I am so thankful that when everything fell apart, that no one handed me a pamphlet that said, hey, here are the seven steps to being a good husband, because my flesh would have completely destroyed it. Instead, Christ gave me his spirit and made it alive in me so that I can't help now but be a good husband and adore my wife the way that she deserves. And I can't help but being engaged in my kids' lives and being excited about them. And I can't help but worship and give full devotion to this glorious God that deserves it. I also don't want to paint a picture that has been all puppies and ice cream since then. A year after Christ decided to save me, he did give us Charlie. Uh, If those of you don't, don't know Charlie, when Charlie was eight months old, he started having seizures. Uh, At his worst, he had 80 in one day. Um, And so we did what normal parents would do. We took him to the doctor and said, we'll get it figured out today, right? And that day turned into a week, which turned into a month and then a year, and now Charlie's eight years old. And it's not been this miraculously fast process that we thought it would be. Now, by God's grace, you know, two brain surgeries later, Charlie has been seizure-free for 18 months. So praise God. But that was a scary process. It still is a scary process. But what I want you to know is that throughout all of it, the thing that my wife and I felt the most was the overwhelming love of God, that he was in complete control. And so if any of that stuff that I said this morning pulls at your heartstrings at all, please come talk to me. God wants to do for you what he did for me. He wants to make you new. He wants to give you new life. He wants to change you from the inside out and make all things new. So let's talk. And thanks for giving me a couple of minutes of your time. I'm going to... uh...
I'm going to pray for Austin. I'm going to pray for our body. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me because I'm going to read the scriptures after that. So remain standing after I pray. Father, thank you for men and women like uh, Austin and Jessica Skax. Thank you, Father, for a body filled with folks like that. And we thank you for the grace that you reach out to us. And don't dust us off, but make us new creatures in Christ. And old things pass away, new things come. You give us a new heart. God, what a blessing. And we just say thanks. Lord, thank you for Temple Bible Church. Thank you for this church that we've grown to love and care for. And Lord, you place different men in different positions of leadership and women. We're just grateful. Thank you for the privilege of serving the Savior and serving these saints. And now, Father, as we open the word, I pray that you'll teach us from the word. I pray for the next several months as we study the Gospel of John, that for myself and the other men who will preach this word, Father, that you will hide us behind the cross so Jesus is seen. And Spirit of God, you tell us you'll guide us into truth. And so with all of our preparation, Father, we recognize apart from your Spirit, we're nothing. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us today and for the next several months. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Would you remain standing as I read from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Let's read together, or let's read together as a euphemism. I'll read you, listen. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and nothing, and, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We're going to spend almost the whole sermon in verse 1, so don't panic when we come with five minutes left and we go to the next verses. Okay, We're going to look at verse 1. We're going to look at the first 18 verses in the chapter, but almost the whole time in verse 1. You may be seated. John Stott, the great New Testament scholar who went to glory about uh, two years ago, wrote in his introduction to the commentary of John, the gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a toddler to wade in. The Gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, but shallow enough for a toddler to wade in. We are going to swim and we're going to wade through John for the next several months. In fact, we're going to look at the prologue today, the first 18 verses. And in my mind, the prologue of John is a garden. It's a garden with all these seeds that are planted in it. And the rest of the Gospel, these seeds will germinate and we'll see bloom. In fact, we're going to read words in the prologue when we see the first 18 verses, uh, words like this, light and darkness, life and truth, glory and world, receive and believe. We're going to see all these words that are presented to us in the first 18 verses. These are the seeds that are planted in the prologue of John, and they're going to rise and, and germinate and bloom throughout the gospel of John. So as we journey through this gospel for the next several months, this is what we're going to be looking at. This morning, though, we focus upon the prologue. We focus upon uh, the word. And so when we focus upon the word, which is what we're going to be looking at today, we're going to see these different words in it. Surprises. How many of you love surprises? You absolutely love surprises. Let me see your hands. How many of you say, I can't stand surprises? Let me see your hands. Okay. So uh, ladies, I got a question for you. Your husband, you come home on a Friday and your husband has your car packed. He has a babysitter arranged. He has plane tickets to go somewhere. Everything is in place for you to go. He's going to capture you. How many of you ladies say, that's the most romantic thing I've heard my whole life? Raise your hand. Now, if your husband's sitting next to you, wave your hand in his face so he can see that right now, okay? I I mean, to you, that's the most romantic thing. In my house, that would go over like a root canal. (laughs) Is that right, babe? 
My, my wife hates surprises. In fact, five years ago when uh, our grand, first grandson was born to our son, uh, Bev went out to the West Coast to be with him where he was training. And uh, at the end of a week there, you remember this story, at the end of the week there, Bev's in the airport and uh, she calls me from the airport. And she, I said, babe, what are you doing? And she says, I'm in line to get lunch. And uh, so I said, you don't have to do that. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, you don't have to do that. And uh, well, what do you mean? Well, I had all these upgrades that I had never used and we always sit in the back of the bus, but I had enough upgrades to surprise her like a root canal <laughs> and put her in first class. Is that right? And so when I did that, when I moved to that position, I said, babe, you don't have to do that because you're going to be in first class and they'll feed you. And on the other end, I heard silence. <laughs> and I thought, I messed up again. You would think after almost 40 years of marriage at that time, 41 years by now, I would know better. My wife doesn't like surprises. She grew up in a home where surprises are not typically good. And so for some of you ladies, that's the most romantic thing in the world you can do. In our home, that's something that I'm brain dead when I do. Okay? It's not a good thing in our home. And I should have recognized that and I should have known that, but I didn't. Surprise us. The prologue to John's gospel contains the biggest surprise in the history of the world. It's the biggest surprise in the history of the world. That God would become man. It's the biggest surprise in the history of the world. And it's revealed to us in these first 18 verses. Now you're saying, Pastor Gary, we just did Christmas together. That's what it's about. You're right. That's what it's about. But we're going to take a look at it at a little different way. John records this event unlike any of the other gospels. So a little gospel background before we get there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Sin, we get the word synonym from, means similar or the same. Optics, we get the word to, to, to see. So when you look at the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you see is they are the same. You see they're the same, synoptic gospels. They, they record basically the same events in the life of Christ, little different lens that they're looking through because they write with different purposes, but the synoptics are the same. John's gospel is different. I thought about doing this. I should have done this. I, I, I should have bought three Red Delicious apples and one Granny Smith apple because three Red Delicious apples look like uh, what? They are red and they are delicious, but the Granny Smith apple is what color? Green. So if I had these three apples, we would say one is not like the other, referring back to Sesame Street days, right? And, and so that, that's what we're saying. We're saying John is not like the other. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Red Delicious apples and John is the Granny Smith. It's different. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's inferior in any way. It's still recording the life of Christ. But 70% of John's gospel is not given to us in the other gospels. John writes in a different way with a different purpose. John writes differently. His material is different. His style is different. In fact, what we're going to see in John's gospel is he's going to talk about the works of Christ and the words of Christ. And he's going to do that for a particular purpose. He's going to talk about the, the words of Christ. We're going to read seven times in John's gospel, seven I am's. Now, when you hear the word I am, your mind should race back to Exodus. You remember when Moses was called by God to go to Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses' question is, whom shall I send me? And God's answer was what? I am who I am. And seven times in John's gospel, we're going to read these words. Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, I am. And you can see what the rest of those are. And Jesus is identifying himself as the same as the God of the Old Testament. He's saying, I am the same as the God that Moses sent to free the nation of Israel from Pharaoh. I am. Those are the words of Christ recorded for us in John. We're also going to see the works of Christ recorded for us in John. There are seven signs, if you will. John, interestingly enough, doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. 
because John's writing with a particular purpose. He's writing on purpose. So John's signs are changing water into wine, healing official son, feeding 5,000, raising Lazarus, all seven of these. So what we see are the words of Christ and the works of Christ. John is very intentional about what he's writing. Now, there are times, perhaps, when you and your spouse, somebody gets upset because the other one doesn't understand what the other one wants. That ever happens in your house? I mean, sometimes you'll say something and I'll hurt Beth's feelings or she hurt my feelings and say, babe, I just didn't understand what you meant by that. I love John because he says what he means. He says, I'm writing this book with a purpose. So flip in your Bibles or your apps to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, what we find there is John specifically gives us his purpose. He says, I want you to know why I'm writing this gospel. And in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, Jesus performed many other signs. That doesn't use the word miracles. He uses the word signs once again. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the present disciples that are not recorded in this book. John says, I, I, I didn't write everything he did. I wrote some things. He intentionally chose what he wrote about. But these are written, the ones I've chosen are written about, that you may believe. Believe is a key word in John's gospel. That you may believe that Jesus is literally, in the Greek text, it says the Christos the Christ, the Messiah. He says, I've written these things, I've written this gospel so that you can believe, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. And we see a lot of those seeds that were planted in the prologue coming to life in this particular verse. We see the disciples talked about, we see the word belief, we see the word Christos, Messiah, we see the word believe, we see the word life. And so John says, I want you to know I'm writing this gospel, and as I write this gospel, I'm writing it for a particular purpose. I'm writing it not to just Greeks, not to just Romans, not to just Jews. I'm writing it to the world so that you can read it and you can know that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he writes. Now, when he writes, it's interesting. He writes about 20 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written their gospels. So John is the last gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written 15 to 20 years before. Now, all of a sudden, John picks up his pen with a specific purpose in mind. And so when John writes, he's thinking about things that Jesus said, things that Jesus did to support his thesis that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christos, the Son of God. And that's why he lists those seven things in each category very specifically. He's building a case. He's writing a thesis. He's an attorney arguing his, his case, if you will. And so what John is saying is, Jesus is the Christ. You need to know that. You need to know that he's the one. So he writes with a very particular purpose. Now, 15 to 20 years after the other gospels, we are now 50 to 60 years after the birth of the church in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. Initially, the church was comprised of Jews. Church was birthed in Jerusalem. Jewish people were there. They became the first followers of Christ. 50 to 60 years later, the Greeks, the Gentiles, are the predominant people in the church body, people like us. If you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile. And so they became the primary population of the church at that time. When John writes, the Greek world has great influence at that time. The Romans are in the area, but the Greeks have influenced thought, if you will, more than anybody else. So when John writes, he's writing for the whole world, but specifically as in mind, the Jew and the Greek. And for us to understand John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we have to understand a little about the Greek mind and the Jewish mind. The, the, the word for word that we read in the beginning was the word is logos. You've heard that word before, perhaps. If not, it's a new word to you. That's what it looks like in the Greek text up top and its translated word. In the beginning was the logos. The logos was with God and the logos was God. 
John 1, 1. Okay, that's the word logos. Well, to understand what that logos means to the Greek reader and to the Jewish reader or to the Gentile reader, we have to understand their worlds. To the Greek, the world was filled with chaos. The world was filled with chaos. They have multiple gods in Greek mythology, Zeus, Apollos, et cetera, et cetera, all these gods, and the world that came into being was a world filled with chaos. To the Jewish mind, the world was filled with order. All you gotta do is go to Genesis chapter one. When you read in Genesis chapter one, it talks about on the first day God created, then it was day and it was night. On the second day, third day, they, the thought is very logical. In the Jewish mind, everything is very orderly. The world is orderly. You've got land, you've got sea, you've got light, you've got darkness, all that's there. But in the Greek mind, it's not that way. The world is filled with chaos. Then we talk about the gods. Well, the Greek gods were powerful, but they were impersonal. They were powerful, but they were impersonal. In the Jewish mind, their God is a powerful God, but he's a personal God. He's the same God who spoke to the prophets. He's the same God who opened up the Red Sea. He's the same God who allowed these miracles to be performed. He's the same God who brought on Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. He, he's a personal God to the Jewish people. Uh, Austin given his testimony referred to Ezekiel and the new covenant. He's the God who gave the covenants to the Jewish people, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. The, the, the land covenant. He gave uh, the Abrahamic covenant. He was very personal to the Jewish people. So if you're a Greek and your world is in chaos and your God is powerful, but he's impersonal. If you read the writings of Pliny the philosopher or Aristotle or Plato, what you find is they've got to make order out of all this. And so they all write, they all speak, they all teach about the Logos. The Logos to them, the word, is what brings life together, what makes sense out of chaos. And so in the Greek mind, Logos means order and reason. So if you're a Greek and you read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, you're thinking that Logos is orderly and reasonable. If you're a Jewish mind, when you hear the word Logos, you're thinking that's the creative force behind everything. Because in the mind of the, of, the, of the Jewish people, God was the one who spoke and things came to being. His word brought things about. His word brought about creation. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, and God said. It doesn't say God built. It doesn't say God did something else. It said God spoke. God said. The Logos spoke. And what we're going to find a little later in this message at the end of it is that God was the architect, but Christ was the carpenter. God spoke, but Jesus did the bidding. And so what we see is God is highly active in creation. He's also highly active in revelation. When we hear the word logos, as a Jewish person, your mind goes to creation, God said. When God said, it came about. God also, when he spoke, revelation came. He is the God who reveals himself. It says in Hebrews 1.1, in the past, God did what? What's it say? In the past, God spoke. So in the Jewish mind, his logos, that Jewish mind is thinking the God of creation and the God of revelation, and ultimately the God of salvation. And so we pick up John 1.1, 1, 1, we've read it many times, and, and we just read about it and we automatically jump to Jesus. But as John is pinning this gospel, he's saying, I want you to know that Jesus, John chapter 20, is the Christos, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. He's the logos. And so with that background, we go to John 1.1. And we're going to spend almost our entire time in John 1.1. The revelation or the revealing of the word. In John 1.1, the thing that we see, actually verses 1 and 2, is that the word is infinite. The word is infinite. 
And, and what I'm going to tell you is, you know, this come and see idea, we want you to come and see for the next months as John proves his point from his thesis that Jesus is the Christos. So let's look here. In the beginning was the word. Now, when you hear the words in the beginning, where does your mind go to? Genesis, that's exactly right. Genesis 1.1. This is creation language. It's creation language. In John 3, we're going to read new creation language. Jesus is going to encounter a guy named Nicodemus. He's going to talk about being born again. We're going to talk about new creation. But right now, this is creation language. John unmistakably wants us to go back to the beginning of time and even before that. John places his pen to the parchment, begins his gospel, and says, in the beginning. Everybody's mind races to Genesis chapter 1. That's exactly what John and what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. Creation language. In the beginning became the Word. In the beginning, the Word became. In the beginning, the Word was created. In the beginning was the Word. It doesn't say the Word became. It doesn't say it was created. In the beginning was the Word. If you circle things in your Bible, four times in the first two verses, you see the same verb, the verb was. It's an imperfect tense verb. From the verb to be, imperfect tense, to remind you of your English, means continuous action in the past. There's this continuing action that took place, continuous action in the past. The point John is making, in the beginning was the word, the point John is making is that whoever this word is and whomever this word is, this word has existed in eternity past. Before the heavens and the earth were created, this word was, the logos was. So I want you to imagine me for the first time. You're reading this gospel for the first time. And we've just read the first five verses. The big question that should come to your mind is, well, who is this word? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who is this word? And John says, before he does the big reveal, if you will, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was preexistent. The word has always been. The, the, the word existed in eternity past in time. By the way, in, in the Greek mind, when, when they would hear this, that he was, he's the source of all reason, of all wisdom, of all knowledge, that would certainly fit with him. And to the Jewish mind, if you were thinking Jew, your mind would go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We just look at that passage at Christmas time. We often look at it to remember where Christ came from. He was the baby born in Bethlehem. Often we neglect, we neglect the end of that verse. Here's what Micah 5, 2 says. Look at it up here. But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you, from you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from when? From the days of whoever the Messiah would be. This is a verse given by the prophet Micah to talk about the coming Messiah. He would be born in Bethlehem. His goings forth would be from long ago, not only long ago, but from eternity. Whoever the Messiah would be, he pre-existed. He always has been. He always was. The same word that we see in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And so what we see from Micah the prophet is, whoever Messiah is, he was pre-existent. He always has been. And so what we see is, John places his pen to the parchment and says, in the beginning was the word. The word was here. The word always has been imperfect, continuous action in the past. Then John goes on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Interesting word, the word with, pros in the Greek language, P-R-O-S. The Word was with God. I could say, yesterday Bev was with me while we were eating Blue Bell ice cream. 
Now, that's not true. We didn't eat Bluebell ice cream yesterday, but um, if we did, that would be an accurate statement. Bev was with me while we were eating ice cream. If she was with me, it means she was in my presence or I was in her presence. That's what the word means. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was in the presence of God. He was with God. If Bev and I were eating ice cream together, she is distinct from me. She is not me. I am not her. We are distinct from one another. And being was the word, the words with God, but we are in the presence of one another. That's the concept here. I think it's an allusion to the, to the Trinity, actually. And he's showing, in the beginning was the word, always has been, and the word was with God, distinct from God. We would say we are with so-and-so. That doesn't mean we are that person. We are, we are distinct from one another. And you should say, praise God, she is distinct from me, actually. And so the question then comes up, well, John, if he's preexistent and he's with God and distinct from God, is he really God? I mean, it was a word. The word was with God that is distinct from in the presence of. So John, is he really God? And it's as though John anticipates the question, the spirit of God who gave John the word of God. And, and, and it's like a punctuation mark. It's really a crescendo at the end of verse one. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, and the word was God. He was God, Amen. I mean, that's what he says. He comes to this great crescendo. And he says, not only is the word eternal, not only is the word distinct from the Father, but the word was actually God. In verse 2, he underscores that. He says, let me reiterate, he was in the beginning with God. Don't forget and don't diminish this truth. The Logos is God, eternal God. Okay, John, so who is that? Preexistent, distinct from? but the same as. So who is he, John? The big reveal, if you will, the curtains part all the way in verse 14. So drop down to verse 14. And the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John says, let me tell you who the word is. The word is God become flesh. The the, the passage we're going to look at in between here talks about the light coming to the world. It can only fit one person. John the Baptist says this person is Jesus, who's different from John the author. John the author of this book is the beloved apostle. He's saying, I I want you to know the word became flesh. The word dwelt among us. The word came to earth. And and not only that, but but he dwelt. The word dwelt is an interesting word there. It it, it literally is to, to, to tent among us. T-E-N-T, to, to tabernacle among us. In the Old Testament, when God appeared in the nation of Israel, the first time he appeared in the tabernacle. You remember that? It was a tent. He came and he tented among us. That's what John's saying. He, he, he came and he lived here. He, he, he tented among us. He, he was fully God, fully man. He tented there. And so he moved from the tabernacle to the temple. Temple's built in Jerusalem. He comes there and dwells there. And then he says, the word becomes flesh. He tented among us. And here's what's great, guys. You go all the way to Revelation chapter 21. I love this. In Revelation 21, describing God's presence with us for all of eternity. In the past, he talks about the tabernacle. He talks about the temple. He talks about the word becoming flesh and dwelling, tenting among us. And then in John 21, listen to this. He says, I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth. The first heaven, first earth passed away. There's no longer any CSO. The holy city of Jerusalem, I heard a loud voice from the throne. And it said, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall guess what the word is dwell among men 
and they shall be in his presence forever. The same idea. He's going to tent among us. We're going to tabernacle. He's going to tabernacle. He's going to be there. He's going to be alive. And, and so John, who also is the author of Revelation, says, in John, I want you to know the word became flesh, and he dwelt with us. He tented with us. That's the tabernacle. That's the temple. That's the Messiah. And, and that's the future of all of eternity. And I look at that and say, glory, hallelujah. Man, what a great, what a great way to look at this as he puts that together. This should be an aha moment for us. You remember aha moments? You've had aha moments. Remember the first time you saw the Rockies? Then you're driving through West Texas and you're driving through West Texas and you're driving through West Texas and you think it's got to get better than this and then you drive through New Mexico and you drive through New Mexico and you think it's got to get better than this and you drive through Southern Colorado and it's got to get better than this and then all of a sudden there they are and you go, wow, wow, look at that. Any of you scuba dive? I don't scuba dive. How many of you scuba dive out there? You scuba dive. Remember the first time you scuba dive? I snorkel. I love to snorkel. You go snorkeling. You go scuba diving. You're standing on the, on the beach, but then you go there and you put that mask on. You put that snorkel on and you stick your head under water. You go, wow. Wow. I'll never forget the first time I saw Bev coming down a stairway, power dorm, LSU. I go, wow. We should look here and go, wow, the word became flesh. Charles Wesley, brother John Wesley, founder of Methodism, wrote a carol that we sang twice last month. Hark the herald angels sing. You know where it comes from? John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to what? Dwell. Where do we get that from? John chapter 1. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, meaning Christ or God with us, the word Emmanuel. That's where Charles Wesley got it from, John chapter 1, verse 1. We should go, wow, look at this. The greatest surprise in the history of the world. These are uh, our daughter's children. And uh, we've got, as you know, we've got, uh, I had a put that up there. I hadn't showed you a picture in years. Uh, this is Emerson Kate in the middle. I want to talk about her for a second. Uh, she's got uh, three brothers and she's got two first cousins. Our son has two sons, so she's the princess warrior. She's the only girl out of six of our grandkids. Uh, about, uh, about three or four years ago, uh, Emerson Kate was in preschool. And so they did a big Christmas celebration at her preschool. And so Bev and I went, and Bill and Sarah are there, our daughter and son-in-law, and uh, after they do a little program, we go into this fellowship hall. Fellowship hall is about as big as this area. They had two or three hundred people there, I'm guessing. I'm not sure. And uh, those folks are there, and we decide we'll each be assigned one kid. So we keep up with our kids. We can go man to man. So Bev and I only had two kids because you go man to man with two kids. Once you go to three, you've got to go to zone defense, and we weren't cut out for that. So <laughs> we stuck with two. If you don't know what that means, ask somebody and they'll tell you one day. So anyway, we go into this fellowship hall and there are lots of things to do in there. There's Santa, take, you can take pictures of Santa. There's face painting, there's ornament. You can make an ornament. You can uh, get, you know, uh, blowing snow, they can play in it. There's cookies and uh, hot chocolate and whatever, uh, milk. And, and so I'm assigned Emerson Kate. That's my job, keep up with my granddaughter. I got sidetracked, distracted. I think it was by the cookies and the hot chocolate probably. <laughs> And so I'm distracted, and I go to look up, and there's no Emerson Kate. I have no idea where she is. I've only got one eye. I can't see the whole building even. 
And so I'm a little panicked at this point in time. What good grandpa loses a granddaughter in a church and can't find him? And so I, I'm a little panicked at that point in time. I look all over. She's not with Santa. She's not eating cookies. She's not where the snow's blowing. She's not anywhere. And then I saw her. She was across the room. They had a manger set up. The manger was set up, and they had pretty good-sized items there. They had Mary and Joseph, and they had the wise men, and they had some shepherds, and they had, uh, I think, a camel and sheep and a goat, and they had all that stuff. So I make a beeline over there. I'm not going to tell anybody I lost my granddaughter. It's coming out now. I guess we're live streaming, and Bev's taking pictures. I'm in (laughs) trouble. So I beeline for my granddaughter, Emerson. And when I got from about here to that microphone, I stopped. That little girl was mesmerized. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I wonder what she's looking at. As I got closer, there was a, a, a uh, like tape so you couldn't go past it. Like at a crime scene, they put the yellow tape out. I forget what this was. But, and I watched my granddaughter go under that. I probably should have stopped her, but I didn't. And as she went under that, she went and she leaned over, kissed the baby Jesus. And my heart melted. It was like, I'm in tears now thinking about it. Emerson and Kate could care less who was there and who saw her. She could care less about all the other stuff happening around her. She could care less about Santa and cookies and milk. She could care less that she had left us and was by herself and I was panicked. She wanted to see the baby. You know, I've reflected on that a hundred times. And when I think about this passage, I think, isn't that the way we should be? Isn't that the way we should be? Come, let us adore him. Shouldn't we be fixated on him? I, I, I love what Austin's testimony, I heard it all three hours, and he was a man who community didn't matter to him, and now it does, the word didn't matter, and now it does, and, and, and the gospel, he, he wouldn't talk, and now he does, and it's a changed life because of that baby. You know, NFL playoffs have started, if you don't know that. They started as well as college football playoffs. And so this afternoon, there are going to be some teams playing NFL teams. Uh, two games, Saints play in the late game. We're going to cheer for them, right? In fact, what do you call a bunch of millionaires watching uh, NFL playoff games this afternoon? Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. But, but anyway, I mean, you're going to watch that. Or tomorrow night, you might watch Georgia and Alabama play. And it's amazing to me what you're going to see. You're going to see people who got up this morning and they put stuff on that is unbelievable. They painted their faces. They put all this garb on and they could care less what other people think of them. They're going to go out there. They're going to scream. Some of you are going to stand in front of your TV and scream like they can hear you on the other side. I mean, you're going to go crazy. You're going to wear your, your, your jerseys. You're going to wear your stuff. And people go to those games and they are so passionate, so excited. Isn't that the way we should be about the greatest surprise in human history that God became a man and he came to this planet for us? And yet we just go on like it never happened. The word is infinite. The word is infinite. The word is also the creator. If you look at the next verse, it says, I told you we'd spend the whole time in the first verse. If you look at the next verse, it says, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. God spoke, he was the architect, Jesus was the builder. Uh, Colossians 1 puts it this way. Paul's writing, he says, in him, referring to Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
Jesus is the one who built this logos, this word. So imagine all of a sudden you're a Greek person and now you see there is order in life. There, is, there are things in life that matter. And the one who, who matters the most is the one who created all this. It's the word, the living word, Jesus. And if you look at the next verse, it says, in him was life. He's the life giver and the life sustainer. And this life was the light of men. And then the next verse is foreboding. The light came into the world, but the world did not comprehend it. The words light and life, we'll, we'll find these are seeds planted in the garden of the prologue that will come to germination throughout our journey through John's gospel. We're going to see these words over and over. The word for life is zoe, Z-O-E, zoe. And, and Jesus is going to talk about this in John's gospel. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, the one and me will live even if he dies. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to see this concept of he being the life giver and life sustainer throughout John's gospel. We looked at Christ as the light in one of my Christmas messages that I preached this year. We see over and over that he is the light of the world. He claims that himself. The cachet of Christianity is Christ, not money in the bank, not a car in the garage, not a healthy body, not a better self-image. Secondary and tertiary fruits, perhaps, these things are, but the Fort Knox of faith is Christ. Fellowship with him, walking with him, pondering him, exploring him, the heart-stopping realization that in him you are part of something ancient, endless, unstoppable, unfathomable, and that he who can dig the Grand Canyon with his pinky finger thinks you're worth his death on a Roman cross. Christ is the reward of Christianity. Why else would Paul say his supreme desire is to know Christ? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's no life apart from Christ. He is the giver of life, the sustainer of life, and he is the one who sheds light on the world. When Charles Wesley wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, another verse says this, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life, where did those words come from? John chapter 1, light and life to all he brings, filled with healing in his wings. I hope you'll never sing that song and not think of John 1. I hope you sing it differently every time you do any Christmas. The word is revealed. We saw that in John chapter 1, verse 14. John Stott said, God is grace is God loving, God stopping, God coming to the rescue, giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. St. Augustine, the great church father, said, How great is a God, how great a God is he who gives God. He gives God. God sent God. He sent his son. He sent himself. The witness of the word is John the Baptist. Next week, we're going to spend the whole time talking about John the Baptist. If you pick up in the next verse, it says in verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not the author of the book. This is John the baptizer. He was a witness that he might, he came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness of the light. So then we see the response to the word, the logos, the one who came to dwell. God in the flesh. And the first response is a response of rejection. We're going to see this throughout John's gospel, that he came, presented himself, but many rejected him. Look at verse 9. There was the true light that came into the world, enlightened every man. He was in the world, he, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. If you write in your Bibles in the line that, the world did not know him. He offered himself to the world, but the world didn't recognize him. They rejected him. Not only did the world reject him, but look at the next verse. He came to his own. That's a Jewish people. 
and his own people didn't receive him. So there's the rejection of the Logos, but there's also the reception of the Logos in the next verse. Verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So those that receive the Logos or those that believe in his name become his children. The word belief is very important in John's gospel. It means more than to give intellectual assent to. I can say, I believe the stool will hold me. I can look at it and tell you it's made out of wood, it's got four legs. Um, I can give intellectual assent to that stool. When John writes about belief, he means this. It's not just believing it will hold you, it's trusting it will hold you. I've just believed. When John writes and uses the word belief, and he's gonna do it many times in this gospel, I think over 50 times, it's not just paying intellectual assent that yes, Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, but it's saying Jesus is indeed the Christ and therefore, I trust him. That's what he's saying. So my final question is this. How have you responded to the Logos? Have you received him? Have you rejected him? Soren Kierkegaard, great philosopher, don't agree with much of what he said, but he's a great philosopher. He's got a story called The um, Fair Maiden and the King. And I changed it up just a little bit to use for a conclusion. Kierkegaard talks about a king that has a vast empire and he has vast holdings. And one day the king is riding on his horse through one of his fields. As he's riding through one of his great fields, he sees a fair maiden. She's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen and he's attracted to her. He, he, stay, he stays at a distance on his horse and over the next few weeks, he comes day after day after day just to lay his eyes on the maiden. He begins to find out who she is and what she's about. He talks to her friends, he talks to family members with, with, without revealing why he wants to know about her. He finds that she indeed is a peasant girl, that her family is part of his empire and he finds out that although she is poor financially, she is rich in character. She seems to be the woman that he wants for the rest of his life, but he's got a dilemma. You see, if he goes to her and tells her that he loves her, he will not know if she reciprocates because of the vast holdings and wealth he has, or because he's the king and nobody disobeys the request of the king. And so he comes up with a plan. He goes back to his palace and the next day he changes into the clothes of a commoner. He puts on the clothes of a laborer. He didn't go out to the field on his horse, but he walks out to the field. And he's hired by one of his own men who has no idea who he is to work in his own field. And he goes to work in his field next to the beautiful fair maiden. And they labor together and they work together. They plant together. They harvest and reap together. And over the months, the fair maiden falls in love with the man who she thinks is a commoner. They arrange their wedding. He tells her, we'll do as the custom is in our land. We will go to our city. I'll come and pick up your family and your friends, have them ready. And when, they're ready, when, when you're ready at this date and this time, I'll come and pick you up and we'll go to my city and we'll be married. It was a wedding day. The commoner showed up. But he didn't show up as a commoner. He came riding his horse, surrounded by his army, dressed in the royal robes 
because the king had come. He had come to rescue this commoner and to give her life. And that's what's happened to us. Philippians chapter 2. You read about it. Jesus became a commoner. He became one of us. John 1.14. He put on flesh and became one of us. So that we could be his bride and be with him as his children forever. That's the great news of the gospel. The prologue of John, the promises are fulfilled. The prophets have spoken to the one who's to come. And he came. And his name is Jesus. His eternal life and eternal hope. If you'll believe in who he is. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. that shows us who the Messiah is. If you're here today, maybe you have given intellectual assent to who Jesus is, but you've never personally believed that has placed your faith and trust in him, I invite you this morning, right where you are, to do that. Or maybe some of us need to be like Emerson Kate, my granddaughter. We've been ashamed of the gospel. We've openly spoken of the gospel. We've been more concerned what people around us think. And today's a day where we drive a stake in the ground and say, I will be your woman, I will be your man, to speak openly, unashamedly, unabashedly about the one who came and tabernacled among us. Lord Jesus, we love you. Father, thank you for this plan. Spirit of God, thank you for indwelling us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming a commoner to redeem us. In your name, amen.